At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Also, if you're, while you're taking that out, if you have a, a, a Bible in the book form, I want to encourage you just to stick a, a finger or stick a paper in uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to get there later on uh, near the end of our time together. But we'll be in Genesis chapter 4 and then we'll jump to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And this morning I want to ask you this question. Do you know what the most damaging sin to relationships is? What's the most damaging? You know, the the sin that tears marriages apart, the sin that causes families to disintegrate, or the sin that causes friendships to dissolve. I'll tell you, it's pride. Pride is the sin that hinders our relationship with God most, but also as it infects our lives and we live out pride, it, it destroys all other relationships as well. Pride has super damaging effects, not only on us personally, but also on those in whom we love and in those relationships. And this week I came across this letter that was written from a husband to a pastor that highlights the damaging effects of pride. Listen to this letter. It says, Dear Pastor, I've been stubborn in my marriage and I'm about to lose my wife. She's pulled away from me because I have hurt her so many times with my arrogant, powerful attitude. I always think my way is the right way of doing things, and she is weary from trying to get my attention. I am a Christian, but struggle with stubbornly believing my way of doing things is the best way. In the process, I put her down, dismiss her opinions, and I am on the verge of losing her for good. How can I overcome this Stubborn pride. What an amazing admission. That the Lord had to bring this man to this point in his life that he finally was able to see the damage his pride was causing. And as as I read through this letter, it's almost as though, uh, from my perspective, it's kind of like seeing a train wreck happen in slow motion where you see there's this amazing force because a time of neglect and, and not dealing with sin has, has started this, this train on this process down the road that is almost in, inevitably, you can't stop it. And though as it hits this moment of where pride uh, fully is, is blown out in this relationship, it's like the, the marriage relationship is dismantling right before this man. What we see here is this man's intoxicating pride had blinded him. He wasn't able to see that the way he was feeling and the way he was acting and the way he used different words, how that it was impacting his wife, which was supposed to be the most precious relationship to him. 
Right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God has given us the greatest relationship and the marriage relationship is the closest feeling and sense of unity that we feel this side of heaven. And yet this man who was a Christian was taking advantage of that relationship. And now this relationship is on the verge of disaster. And I'll tell you, in my years of pastoral ministry, I've seen many, many marriages get to this point. Where at the end, pride becomes the underlying issue. It becomes the massive issue that if, if we can't get over this issue of pride, then the marriage will not make it. And I'll tell you, the marriages that do make it are the ones that finally are able to come and bring pride to the forefront and say, we need to deal with this. This is the problem. The problem is not with the other spouse, but the problem is within pride within the heart. And the relationships, the marriages that are able to walk through that in grace and love and find reconciliation from God, those are the marriages that make it. But pride is so challenging. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with pride. Maybe pride is like the biggest thing you have in life, or maybe pride is underneath the surface. Well, today, as we continue our series, taking a look at family, why bother? What we're going to see is how pride has impacted not only us as individuals, but how it impacts our relationship with God and how it impacts our relationship with others. There's no way we're going to be able to have peace in this life and allow pride to exist at the same time. Those two things cannot live at the same time. Pride and peace do not go together. And so we're going to watch today as we walk through this account, we're going to see how pride enters into Cain and how it utterly destroys him in his relationship with God and with others. But how do we get there? So as we're taking a look at this series, we're, we're trying to look at how God has designed the family and how God has designed relationships and how sin, once it entered in, always brings dysfunction to that. So we're looking at dysfunctional relationships and how God gives us grace to overcome them. And where we've been already is we've looked at God's design, right? We've looked at Adam and Eve. And we looked at God created them to be one, but also created them to be fruitful and multiply. So he's given us this institution of family. He's given us the institution of marriage. And simply right after that, which we saw last week, was after this great gift comes the great fall. Where Adam and Eve look at God's design and they rebel against God's design. They, they go beyond where God has called them to go and they eat of the fruit. And by doing that... They have brought division, not only between them and God, but them and each other. And so they brought dysfunction into creation. And some writers call now, what this is called now, is family after the fall. All right, so we live in this season where we're trying to have family after the fall. For before the fall, family was one. Family was united. There was intimacy. There was nakedness and no shame. But after the fall, their eyes were open to see their nakedness and they covered themselves and distance between them and God became a reality and distance between them and each other became a reality as well. And so now that we live in this season of family after the fall, what we need to understand is one of the consequences of the fall is that you and I are drawn to sin. You and I 
to, to, for us, sin has a certain allure to us. It's as, as though we see it as some shiny thing that we need to have or we want. And one of those allures that we have is pride. So to make much of ourselves. Let me give you a, a quick, simple definition of what pride is. Pride is overestimating ourselves and or underestimating the value of others. Where we overestimate ourselves, whether it's our time, talents, treasure, we over, overestimate who we are or we underestimate who others are. When we walk in that, that season, that's pride. And so as we pick up the account today, what we're going to see is that even though God has made this amazing provision, even through sin, we see the promise that God was going to send one that would, that would crush the head of Satan. Though everything was damaged in the fall, uh, we see that God has promised that he will redeem creation. And if we look in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we see what happens right outside of the garden, right after the fall has taken place. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. What we see here is even in their dysfunction, after Adam and Eve fall and they return and repent to God, God gives them this promise. He gives Eve a son. And in that moment, there is this, there is this promise, there is this joy, there is this grace that she has because she hopes that maybe her son might be the one that cures us from the curse. She may be, he may be the one that God uses to redeem us, to fix what was broken in chapter two or chapter three. But we see this firstborn son of Cain would not be that. That before we could get to the days of light, before man, humanity could be redeemed and reconciled, humanity had to go through darkness and the days would get dark, darker before dawn would break. And today as we look at this passage, what I want us to see is that faithless pride destroys fallen people. Faithless pride destroys fallen people. As, as we walk through this passage today, we're going to see firsthand how pride, as it entered into Cain's life, led him down this downward spiral towards despair. And we see the dangers of that. And the first step to the, in this downward spiral has to deal with faith. You see, this is the first point for today, is that failure in faith is the front door to pride. Failure in faith is the front door to pride. Look at me in verse 3. So, so right now we have Cain and we have Abel. They are the sons of Adam and Eve. And one was, was called to be a worker of the ground and one was called to be a keeper of the sheep. And in verse 3 it says, In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fatted portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. In this account we see it's pretty straightforward. We see two people. We see Cain and we see Abel. And they both bring sacrifices to the Lord. And what we see is God responds to them differently. One 
of these sacrifices he accepts and the other he rejects. One he finds favor on and the one other one he has disapproval of. And we don't know from the text exactly what that looked like. We don't, we don't know how he accepted Abel's and what that looked like or how his disapproval of Cain's looked like. But we can see it obviously was apparent to both of them because we see Cain became upset when he realized that his sacrifice that he brought before the Lord was not accepted. He was very, very angry and his face fell. So the story is pretty simple to understand, but we should ask ourselves the question as we look at this, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Well, from the text, we can't, we can't discern exactly from just the text we have here exactly why Cain was rejected. But we do have the beautiful benefit of the whole counsel of Scripture so we can see how the New Testament speaks about and explains what takes place in Genesis chapter 4. We have two really, really good accounts that help us see into what's going on. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which was commanded as righteous. God commanded him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So though they both did the outward act of a sacrifice, they both brought sacrifices to the Lord, there's something different about Cain's and Abel's. We see from the writer of Hebrews that Abel brought forth his sacrifice in faith. It's as though he is trusting in God for that which he has provided. And he's saying, God, I believe that you are God. I believe that you are worthy. I believe that you are all that I need. And as I give of this sacrifice, I'm trusting in the fact that you will sustain me and care for me. And so as a gift of faith, he steps out and does this. And we see 1 John chapter 3 Verse 12 gives us some insight into Abel's sacrifice. For John writes, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So in other words... Cain murders Abel, not, it wasn't his first act of evil. Actually, everything that came from him was evil. So there was something that was lacking in his sacrifice to the Lord because it came not from a heart of gratefulness or a heart of faith, but from a heart of anger. In essence, it's, it's, it's as though as Abel is going about his daily life, tending the sheep and caring for them, he sees God's provision and is overwhelmed by God's love and God's grace. And so when it comes time for the sacrifice, he brings the very, very best to the Lord as a way of saying, this is all I can do. This is the, the least I can do for you, Lord, for all that you've done. Whereas Cain at the other time, as he's working the ground and he's working the hardness of the soil and has to wait for the, the seed to germinate and begin to produce fruit, the whole time he's waiting, he's becoming more and more angry at God and becoming more and more frustrated at God and being even more frustrated at his brother. So by the time he brings his offering to the Lord, his heart is not full. He's following through the motions. And he's not giving God his best, but giving God his leftovers. And I think it's important for us to understand the interplay here between faith and action. Right? They, they both did the same thing. 
They both outwardly brought sacrifices before the Lord. So their actions were the same, but their faith was different. Cain did not believe that God was worthy of worship. But he still felt obligated to worship. He gave God what he could get away with. And so our beliefs are always revealed in our gifts. Right? Let's just imagine for a moment, it's your birthday. If it is your birthday today, happy birthday. We're glad that you decided to come and share your special day with us. But let's just say it's your birthday. And one of the ways you want to celebrate your birthday is you want to invite everyone from the church over to your house. So we all, got, we all get the invitation. We're like, hey, I'm not doing anything today. Let's go celebrate the, uh, whoever's birthday it is. And so everyone comes over to your house and they come in and we all gather together and you know what we begin doing. We begin talking and eating and fellowship and then it comes time for the birthday cake, right? The birthday cake comes out with candles all on it and we all sing happy birthday to you and their celebration. And before you blow out the candles, someone says, wait, you can't blow those out because you'll spit all over the cake and then we'll get all kinds of... So instead, you have to go get the leaf blower and you blow out all nine, 975 candles, right? And, and everything's fine. Where everyone starts eating cake and maybe there's a little bit of ice cream. And then what comes next at the birthday party? The gifts, right? You know, gifts, gifts come next. And let's say we all bring gifts to whoever whose birthday it is. And it, it's amazing. And so you, you begin opening up your gifts and the, the gifts that are given in love and care and appreciation and all this. And you open up one gift and you're like, oh man, this is just what I need for my hobby. Thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. And then you open up the next gift and, and um, you realize that it's something that's gonna help you with the project that you're trying to finish up around your house. And you're like, oh, thank you so much for this. And then finally you open up this next gift and, and it's given to you from someone from our church that, that realizes you just need a break. Like they see you working so hard and they see you getting after it and you just need a break. So they give you a trip to Fiji for two weeks. You're like, yeah, I got this. You're like, thank you so much. So your appreciation and all that's growing. And then it comes time for my gift. I come to your house and I'm like, hey, thanks for inviting me to your birthday party. Here's your gift. Can you already see that there's a problem? Right, there's some intention here, right? But maybe it's not the same. And so you're like, okay, thanks, pastor, for the gift. And so you begin to open up the gift. And you're like, hey, thanks for the half-used box of tissues. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but thanks for that. Oh, hey, thanks for the half-eaten, shareable-sized Snickers. Love is appreciated. And you continue on, you're opening up the gifts, and you're like, oh, some gum. Thanks for considering me. And you open it up, and it's half-used. Or, or you open it up, and you just get a little coupon like this that says Mr. T's Auto Wash, that after four washes, you get a free wash. And so you're like, thanks, Pastor. And then finally... You pull out expired can of Sloppy Joes from May of 19, right? You're like, I can't even use this because you need to have beef with it. And there's no beef, so all it is is like tomato paste. And so you get the gifts and you're like, thank you. What do these gifts communicate to you about how I value you? Right? It's almost as though it's an afterthought. It's like I went through my office. And I'm like, I got to get you a gift, so let's just grab things that are available in my office. 
and I bring that as a gift to you, how's that gonna make you feel? It doesn't make you feel special. doesn't make you feel worthy. And so, yeah, I brought you a gift. And now many of you are like, I'm never inviting the pastor to any parties that we have because he's just gonna go to his office, find what's available, or go to the food pantry and find something that's expired and bring it to your house. Right? The gifts we choose to give speaks highly of how we view or understand the one that we're giving them to. Right? How we view God and how we understand him will be determined how we view him by the gifts we choose to give him. So let me ask you this question before we get any further. I want you just for a moment to, to evaluate the gifts that you give God. Right? As a form of worship, right? Do you trust him with all the things that he's given you? When you think specifically of your time, your talent, and your treasures, right? Each one of us have the equal amount of time. None of us have more time than others. We all have the same amount of time. So how do you view your time? Do you view your time as an opportunity to walk in faith? Or do you use your time as an opportunity for you to carry about what you got to do? Right, with your calendar, right? I don't know if you like get together with your, your, your spouse on Sunday night and you're like, hey, here's the week kind of unfolding. This is what we've got in the calendar. Or maybe you do it like moment by moment. And I, I don't know how you do your calendar, but in your calendar, is there space for God? Do you just say, God, here's my calendar. Here, here's my day, here's my life. Use it, however, or are you stingy with it? I gotta do this, I gotta do that. I gotta I got go to church, now I gotta get up on Sunday morning, I gotta serve in kids ministry, and you know they got that, that flip camp thing coming up? Yeah, I gotta go do that too, right? Are, are, you, are you coming from a place of worship and gratitude and faith saying, God, thank you for welcoming me to be a part of what you're doing? What about with your, with your, with your talents, right? Each one of us have been uniquely gifted by God to be different. And many of you, you, the talents that God has given, you're using it to make a living for yourself. But when you think about the talents that God has given you, are you using them in faith towards the Lord? Are you saying, God, I thank you for making me good with numbers. God, thank you for making me a, a really rational being that's able to see cause and effect. Or maybe you've made me a strategic thinker. Or maybe you've made me a, a, a great servant. And when we think about those things, are you using those things in faith to honor the Lord, or are you using them for yourself? And even when we think about our treasures, each one of us have different varying possessions, right? And different, some of us make more money, some of us make less money, some of us have a house, some of us have an apartment, some of us have a car, some of us, you know, we all have different amounts, but when we see those things, are you using those, giving those unto the Lord in faith? Or do we use those things and keep them for ourselves to make much of ourselves? See, the way we need to understand that is, in the beginning of this, is that pride begins with a lack of faith. When we don't trust that God is our all in all and everything that we need, then it begins to help us think that I can do this myself. Right? Whenever we begin to speak words like, I've got this, I'm in control, I can overcome this. When you start seeing words like that, that means that you've gone from trusting in God to trusting in yourself and pride is entering in because you're obviously beginning to overestimate your own abilities. You're overestimating who you are and what you can do. And I think that's exactly what happened 
to Cain. Cain began to look around and he began to see what was available and what was there. And he decided that he didn't want to worship God, that he thought worshiping God was something that he had to do. And so he did it, not with a loving heart, but he did it out of just pure, rote devotion. And a failure in faith always leads to unsatisfactory sacrifice. I'll say that again. A failure in faith leads to unsatisfactory sacrifice. Cain should not have been surprised or despondent when he came to the Lord and the Lord did not accept his sacrifice. Right? He, he, should, he should have known that God would not accept it because it wasn't coming from a pure place. It wasn't coming from a place of faith. Instead, he was just doing it and then God looked on it and instead of coming to repentance, what we see is he became very angry and his face fell. It moves us into the the next step of the downward spiral of of pride because the more pride, the more sin. Look with me in verse six. This is the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, in the midst of this deeply profound, sad story, do you see the tender heart of God? Right, knowing that the anger and pride was welling up inside of Cain, we see the Lord tenderly coming to Cain and saying, hey, Cain, why are you angry? Like, you have an opportunity. Though you made a mistake, you have an opportunity to, to change your heart behind your sacrifice. For if you do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Like, if your heart comes from a place of, of faith and gratefulness, will not your sacrifice be accepted? And then he gives him this warning. He says, I know you can't see it, Cain, but right now pride and sin are, are crouching right around the corner, and you're, you're at a crossroads in your life right now. Either you can come back to me in and, and faith and trust, or you can give yourself over to more pride. The tender warning of the Lord in Cain's life. But pride demanded to be sacrificed or satisfied. And so this pride that he allowed in his life, Cain becomes overwhelmed with. And the darkness of his heart continues to grow and it brings forth this tragic moment of where he murders his brother. Now, kind of, we kind of lose the sense of what's taking place here in the English. If we could go back to the Hebrew, we could see that this murdering of his brother was not a, 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 a sin of passion. It didn't just happen in a moment where they're like, happened to be out in a field one day and uh, Cain is overwhelmed. He picks up a stone and kills his brother. It wasn't, it wasn't a crime of passion. This was a crime of premeditatedness. Where what Cain does is he seeks to draw his brother away from the family, away from protection and away from all that, out into a desolate field where no one is, where no one can see and no one can hear. 
And all the while, he's got this all plan that he calls to his brother and says, come out to me. And when his brother does, he carries out the plan of murdering his brother and thinking that he's gotten away with it. But even in the pride of his heart, God knows and God sees. And in verse nine, it says, then the Lord God said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And in that moment, we see instead of following in line like his parents did when they sinned, right? Instead of of once they realized that they were naked and ashamed, they, they came back to God and they repented of their sin. Cain does not repent. Instead, he does the shifting blame thing again, right? He comes out and he says, uh, he says, where's your brother? And he says, I do not know, which is a lie. He knows exactly where he was because it was premeditated enough that he knew where his brother was and where his body was. But then he goes on to say, am I my brother's keeper? See, his pride kept him from coming to repentance. And this idea of keeping his brother, he's like over speaking in the sense of saying, am I my brother's keeper? Which nowhere in scripture calls him to, to keep his brother in this sense. Because this sense of keeper is kind of like a zookeeper. right? A zookeeper is the keeper of the zoo. And what does he do? He makes sure that the animals are fed, makes sure the animals are cared for, makes sure that they are protected, makes sure that they have everything that they need. And so as the zookeeper, the zookeeper keeps all of the animals. And what what, um, Cain is trying to do here is he's trying to say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep my brother? And in essence, what he's really doing is he's not saying that I am the keeper, but he's pointing blame on God because God is supposed to be the keeper, right? God is to be the zookeeper. He's the one that's looking over us as his animals or his kids, and he's providing for us. He's protecting for us. He's making sure that we're fed. And so in essence, what um, Cain is doing is he's turning the finger from himself to God himself saying, God, you are not good because you were not the keeper of your own child. Can you see the damaging effects that pride has birthed inside of him? He's the one that did the wrong. He's the one that has done the evil. He is the one that has taken the life of his brother and now he's raising his finger against God? Oh man, how pride can just cause us to completely have a misguided view of who we really are and who God really is. Pride always defends and minimizes sin. And in the process, as we give ourselves over to pride, pride leads to more sin, which leads to more pride, which leads to more sin. Pride is like drinking a highly addictive, intoxicating drink where you begin to take it in and you taste the power it has and you desire more, so you take in more and then you, you like the taste, so you take it in more. And what happens, it does over time, is it causes you to lose your mind. You no longer have the ability to have rational thoughts or operate in a rational way because you've lost your mind and you get in this cycle that is unescapable. When you drink of the drink of pride, you can't get out of it on your own. And people that come to the point of saying, I understand I have pride, pride is an issue. And then they become more prideful because then they're like, well, I can get myself out of my own pride. Really? That's how you got there in the first place. 
right? When you overestimate your own abilities and you overestimate who you are, that's when you get in. You gotta come to the point where you say, okay, I gotta stop overestimating my abilities. I am a wretched, sinful person. I am full of pride and I need help. There's no amount of doing better, being better that's gonna get you out of the cycle of pride. But we come to the feet of God with our pride and acknowledge our sin before him. We bring it out into the open and then that gives space for God to deal with it. And so we see pride has entered into Cain's life because of his lack of faith. And that pride led to more sin and now we see that pride kills relationships. Look with me in verse 10. It says, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Look at the damaging effects of Cain's pride on his relationships and in his life. His pride has stripped him away now of even with, of his family. He's going to now be a wanderer that's out in the, the, the wilderness. And so his relationship, his family relationships are broken. His relationship with God is broken because he's going outside the presence of God. And when he goes outside the presence of God, what happens? Fear enters in. Because now he knows he's all on his own out there in the wilderness. And he knows that others out there will seek to kill him and destroy him. So pride has left Cain with emptiness and brokenness and all of his relationships are completely damaged. He's separated from others, he's separated from God and he's cut off. And in the end, Cain's pride leads him to a deep sin that separates him completely. Now, as damaging and as difficult as this passage is, and to see the total effects of sin and how pride can damage everything, I'm so thankful that God has given us Christ. For in every way that Cain fell, every way that Cain distorted the design of God, when Jesus came, he came to reestablish it and came to walk in its, in its perfection. I love how, how Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. So go ahead and flip there now. We're gonna look in chapter two, verses three through eight. As, as Paul is writing to the Christians at Philippi, he's trying to help encourage them. And this is how we're supposed to live in the context of the community of the church. As we're seeking to be brothers and sisters in Christ and live together, this is, what he, this is the teaching he gives us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So, so you see how he's given us a different definition of, of this not pride but humility? Instead of having an overinflated view of ourselves and a deflated view of others, what he's saying is, is that in the, the, the course of church and in the course of life, what we're supposed to do is to see others as the greatest need in our lives. That we're supposed to pull others up, to speak life into other people and, and, and consider that their lives are important. And he goes on in verse 4, he says, Let you not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Live in such a way that you're building others up. That's real love. Real love is not self-seeking. Right? We, can, we can determine, we can show, quickly show if someone loves someone or they don't. If a person is self-seeking, if they, all they do for you is transactional, you do this for me and I'll do that for you, that's not love. Love is when I sacrifice and surrender my own rights so that you can be better off. Where I give up my uh, desires and all of my dreams so that your dreams could be fulfilled. That's real love. And so he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he goes on to this. He says, have this mind among yourselves. So he's saying this is a, a renewing of the mind. This is a way of rethinking through life than the way that you have been brought up. Right? Having this mind. And he says, this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying there is that, that without faith in Christ, you can't even have this mind. You are un, incapable of living in this way where you're caring for other people unless you are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you have the ability to have the same mind. You have the ability because you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that can help you live out this way. And then he goes on to describe this. Referring in verse six to Jesus. Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, Jesus, the one who could be full of pride, the one who really was God in the flesh, who could come to earth and he could have walked around and said, hey, I'm God. Like, I am the greatest. I am holy. You are not. I am great. You are insignificant. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, what did he do? He humbled himself. He came because he loves you. He came because you're a dirty sinner that he loves. And he wanted to do everything so that you could be made right, so that you could be made clean before God. And so what did he do? He gave up all of his rights. He gave up being worshipped in heaven continually to come down to live with our limitations. And yet he didn't sin so that he could die to take our punishment and our pain. Jesus emptied himself, became a servant, and was obedient. He came to serve and to suffer so that we might be free. And so here today, if you've never come to the place of trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, realize that he's done the work to free you from your sin, to even free you from the grip of pride, and that apart from Christ, you can do none of that. But in Christ, you can have the freedom to be free from pride. So if you're here today and you haven't come to know Jesus, die to yourself today. Give your life to Christ and come to him for salvation. But for those of us that have already expressed that, experienced that, maybe the call on our lives today is the call once again to come and die. Maybe you've allowed pride to eke its way into your marriage. Maybe you've allowed pride to eke its way into your parenting. Or maybe you've allowed it to, to enter into the way that you respond at work. 
Maybe you have done great things and accomplished a lot and you think that you have those things because of yourself. Stop and be reminded that everything that we have is a gift from God. Let us walk in humility and seek to raise others up instead of oppress them down. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you for your words of truth. And Father, if we are completely honest today, we know that each one of us suffer deeply from this curse of pride. That we're constantly trying to make much of ourselves because we want to feel validated. We want to feel special. We want to have some sort of significance in this life. And really, as the way that you've designed it, that our only hope and our only source of peace comes at the place of surrender at the place of sacrifice, where we daily lay ourselves on the altar saying, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my way, but your way. And so, Father, we confess that pride is an issue for each one of us. And so I pray that in these moments, your spirit would graciously be working in our lives, just like you did to Cain, as you made him aware of his pride and gave him the opportunity to deal with it you do the same for us today. May we be aware that pride is just lurking around the corner, seeking to devour us and destroy us. And may we today choose to come to you, confess our pride, and allow your spirit to work in us. Father, as we sing this song, may these words that come out of our mouths not just be words that we sing, but may it be a song of praise. May this be our resolve today to continue to trust and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.